This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Launching bot number seven. Dad strobes on, audible goes out, and Dad is off and running at the DARPA Grand Challenge. Way back in 2004, I covered a team that was involved in a very unusual kind of race. This is the announcer at the start line. Dad stands for Digital Auto Drive. The DAD Grand Challenge The race was called the DARPA Grand Challenge. Oh, yes, DARPA. It's an arm of the U.S. military, but I like to think of it more like that laboratory you always see in James Bond films where they're, like, inventing crazy stuff. And some of it works and some of it doesn't. And in DARPA's case, they've produced some amazing things. They were responsible, for example, for the creation of the Internet. Yes, a little thing called the Internet you might have heard of. So, so in 2004, the, the Grand Challenge was a competition that DARPA ran. And they put up a $1 million prize for anyone who could get a car to drive itself on a course that was about 140 miles long. And the course went through the deserts of California and Nevada. Autonomous cars were still this really crazy, futuristic idea back then. And DARPA wanted to see if anybody could figure out how to make one work. So for this magazine story I was writing, I went out to California a few months before the race to spend time with one of the teams that was going to compete in the Grand Challenge. Now, I remember that this turned out to be a big battle between Stanford and Carnegie Mellon. It was kind of constant rivalry. So was it Stanford that you went to see? No. So yes, there were big, you know, research universities involved, but there are also these weird little subsets of dreamers that came out of the woodwork to try to compete in the challenge and win the million dollar prize. And I was with one of these dreamers. So it was this group of guys. They worked together at a, at a tech company. They'd read a story in the newspaper about the Grand Challenge, and they were at lunch in the cafeteria in their office. And they said, you know what? I think we could do that. I think we could win the million dollars. I think we could make a car that can drive itself. Where are you? I remember you guys like working out of somebody's garage where you just like in like a suburban house in Thousand Oaks and there was the garage and you had like your vehicle in the garage of the house. Exactly, that was the garage, uh, but that was only one part there. Uh, there were other garages also where we could could put that together in, in workshops there. But yes, in, in That's Reinhold. Okay, my name is Reinhold Beringer. I remember Reinhold's team had moved children's bicycles out of this garage at a team member's house in order to make space for their Grand Challenge dune buggy, which was this thing that was covered in sensors and servo motors. Did you think you had a chance to win? Um, to be honest, yes, because, um, okay, participating is one thing, and of course that was very exciting, but we thought if we do it right, there is a chance from, you know, knowing the technology. It sounds crazy, but with hindsight, we can trace all of the modern enthusiasm for self-driving cars and the billions of dollars now being pumped into that field back to this prize challenge. But people have been offering prizes for a long time. This idea isn't new. One of the most famous tech prizes was established by the British government back in 1714. It offered a huge pot of money to anyone who could solve a problem that was bedeviling the world. In some ways, that prize succeeded spectacularly. But it also showed that jumpstarting innovation by offering a prize isn't always as straightforward as it seems. From Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson. And from The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. Welcome to The Secret History of the Future. 
Tom, welcome to the Hudson River. We are here in a 24-foot sailboat just off the seawall. Uh, Manhattan is about 200 yards to starboard across, across very dirty river water. New Jersey is about 400 yards to port across equally dirty river water. We are sailing north towards the George Washington Bridge. I have brought you out here to talk maritime knowledge and specifically longitude. So we can look south and see the Statue of Liberty or we can see One World Trade. So we know pretty much exactly where we are. But were we to sail south and just keep going, it wouldn't take too long. We'd get, exit New York Harbor and get out into open ocean and have zero landmarks. We'd be out of sight of land and we would no longer have any way to take our bearings just by seeing what's on the coast. It would be really easy for Tom and me to know where we are now, even if we're out of sight of land, because we can just use GPS. But back in the 1700s, in the golden age of sailing ships, that wasn't the case. And ships got lost all the time for a really dumb reason, which was that the ship captains had almost no way of knowing where in the ocean they were. They sort of knew because they could figure out their latitude, which is how far north or south they were, by waiting for the sun to hit its highest point in the sky at high noon and measuring the angle above the horizon. But longitude was trickier. It turns out it was almost impossible to determine how far east or west you are by looking at the sky while you were standing on a ship at sea, which was really unfortunate because a ship captain on a foggy night might think he's still got 50 miles before he's going to reach a coastline to his east, but in fact, the rocks are just 100 yards from his ship's hull. People are dying. Cargo is getting lost. This is a huge problem. No one's figured it out. Tom, what do they do? Well, the British government decides, because obviously we're a maritime power at this point, so Charles II, the king, says, we're going to have a a royal astronomer, and he's going to have this observatory, and his job is going to be to figure out how to solve this problem. I don't know how how he's going to do it, and I don't care how he's going to do it, but he's going to figure it out. And they set up this observatory uh, in London, in fact, right where I live, in Greenwich, on the top of a hill. Um, But that's the astronomer royal's job. People assumed astronomers would solve the problem because at sea, the sun and the night sky are really all you have to get your bearings. You can use them as a compass, like you could find the North Star and know you're headed north. The thing was, you couldn't just look at the night sky and have it tell you where on the globe you are. But if you could use the sky to tell time, there was a way to convert that into location. The idea was, if you could have some sort of clock in the sky to determine time where you were on the ocean. And you could compare that with the time at a place of known longitude on land. Then you could figure out your position. This is Deva Sobel. She wrote a best-selling book called Longitude, all about how this problem was solved. Longitude depends on time, depends on knowing the time at two places at once. Think about how noon in New York is several hours after noon in London. At that time, sailors already knew that if they sailed west across the Atlantic from England to America for each degree west of longitude that they traveled, noon would be four minutes later. So we can do the math. So 24 hours times 60 minutes, that's 1,440 minutes in a day. Divide that by 360 degrees of longitude for the round Earth. 1,440 divided by 360 is four. So each degree of longitude is four minutes. So... If they could work out when noon was on their ship and then figure out when noon was back in England, they could work out how far west they'd sailed. 
Every four minutes of discrepancy between noon on the boat at sea and noon back home in England equals one degree west of longitude. It stands to reason that the sky could serve as a clock. If I'm on the ship and I'm watching the moon pass very close to a particular star, and I have with me tables which tell me at what time this observation can be made at the Greenwich Observatory, then I can compare what time it is aboard my ship with when they would have seen it. The trouble was, accurately observing the night sky through a telescope from the heaving deck of a ship was just too difficult. If if all we're trying to do is figure out time, why don't we just use an actual clock? So yes, you could take a, a clock on the ship and you would set the clock to Greenwich time when you set sail and then you would know what time it was in Greenwich and that... That all sounds great, but the trouble with that approach is clocks have these pendulums in them and the pendulum is going to be upset by the movement of the ship and also the fact that the conditions that the ship is sailing in are constantly changing, the humidity changing, the temperature's changing. That means that all of the components inside the clock made of metal are getting bigger and smaller. All of this affects the accuracy of the clock, so unfortunately that's not going to work either. By the early 1700s, Britain's astronomer royal and Europe's other eminent scientists had made very little headway. So the British government decided to try something radical. The British prize, which finally ferreted out the answer, was £20,000 sterling, which was truly a, a fortune, something on the order of millions of dollars in today's currency. This was a staggering amount of money, but the government was prepared to award it to anyone, anyone at all, who could solve the longitude problem. I think they were desperate. The, the governments really felt that people were not coming up with a solution and that perhaps if a big purse were offered, that that would spur people to concentrate on it, people who might not have been working on it, which is what happened. This prompts people to come up with various new ideas of varying degrees of craziness. Uh, for example, maybe if you had a big sort of hammock, then you could, um, you could use it to compensate for the movement of the ship, and it would mean that you could actually calculate using the lunar distance or the moons of Jupiter methods. It's like a gimbal for a human yeah, exact person. So you would sit there, so as the boat ride back and forth, you would sort of stay stationary and be able to hold the telescope up to your, to your eye. Well, Tom, let's try it. Why don't I just string you up on the mast here <laughs> and let you dangle and see if you can maintain enough stability to uh, sight something in a telescope? Well, I don't know anything about sailing, but I can see just from being in the water for a few minutes that that's just not going to work. And that sounds like exactly the sort of plan that someone who'd never actually been to sea would come up with. <laughs> There was this other sort of cockamamie idea that they would station ships in the middle of the ocean that would fire off cannons at certain intervals, and then you would hear the cannon if you were a ship captain. You would know that signals what time it is, and that makes basically no sense at all. You would have to have so many ships stationed in a grid at sea in order to, to have full coverage. And the, I think they thought they were going to anchor in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And you can't anchor in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Because we now uh, so, know it's several miles deep. Yes, I don't think they really that then. So it was, this was doomed from the start. So, so there, there were some cheekier ideas. So one, one was that 
the powder of sympathy. So you would have one dog on land back home and one dog on the ship. And somehow the dogs had, had telepathy, I guess. And you would wound one dog at noon each day in Greenwich. And the dog that was on the ship would howl because they were somehow psychically connected. And so this way you would know what, what noon was back in Greenwich each day. Now, first of all, that is cruelty to animals. We don't want to be wounding a but dog of all, for science. This powder of sympathy just doesn't exist. Uh, I suppose it's a, it's a bit like quantum entanglement, but um, yeah, they didn't know about that. Uh, but the, the thing is, this is a period when people are just starting to figure out about science. And there's this, the general sense that people don't know what science can and cannot do at this point, which is why you get these crazy ideas like powder of sympathy. So we've got all these crazy ideas, ships in the middle of the ocean firing off cannons, d- dogs being wounded at noon each day. Uh, and then along comes another crazy, and his name is John Harrison. He's got no formal education. His father is a tradesman. And he thinks he's going to build a clock that works at sea. He's sometimes now referred to as John Longitude Harrison. He was born in 1693 in Yorkshire and got very interested in in clocks as a young man. Having set up this £20,000 prize, the British government is expecting it to be won by an astronomer. But when Harrison sees the astronomers haven't got anywhere, he enters the competition and says, how about we try a different approach? Yeah, he's got some expertise. He built his first clock before he was 20 years old. But basically, he's just some guy working in his garage, tinkering away at the problem. A lot like my friend Reinhold when he tried to win the DARPA challenge. Drive to the freeway, program the car to take you someplace, and then you can legally use the cell phone while the car drives itself. Did you think you had a chance to win? Um, To be honest, yes, because um, we thought if we do it right, there is a chance um, from, you know, knowing the technologies, uh, knowing... The day of the race was March 13th, 2004. The self-driving vehicles needed to go 142 miles in order to claim the million-dollar prize. Reinhold's vehicle went 1.7 miles. Then a USB connector came loose and the sensors stopped talking to the computer, and that was that. So this is a year of your nights and weekends and all your optimism and excitement and your car goes less than two miles and then malfunctions. How did you feel? Well, a bit disappointed, but um, nobody won, as you know, uh, even the Red Whitaker team. The vehicle that did best was the car from Carnegie Mellon University and it only managed to go seven and a half miles and then it got stuck on a berm and I remember as it was trying to get off it was kind of spinning its wheels faster and faster and they caught fire so seven miles out of 142 that was the best anyone could do in 2004. So DARPA tried again they doubled the prize money to two million dollars the second grand challenge was only 18 months after the first race but this time amazingly five different self-driving cars were able to finish the full length of the course. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's been done. What had appeared to be an insoluble problem in 2004 had apparently been solved in 2005. It was a great leap forward. Maybe it was the inducement of that extra prize money. But whatever the reason, the world sat up and took notice. It's why we now have so many companies building self-driving cars that can operate not just on desert roads, but in cities. What it did, and in retrospect we we see this, it had actually reignited the interest in autonomous vehicles. And that multi-billion dollar industry all began with just one million dollar prize, which encouraged lots of people to try to solve the problem. 
That's what the British government was hoping for back in 1714 when it set up the Longitude Prize. And the whole thing about open competitions like this is that they encourage all kinds of people with all sorts of perspectives and different ideas to get involved to try to solve a problem. And some of those dreamers might not be as crazy as we think. You just never know what's going to happen. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Just like Reinhold going up against Stanford and Carnegie Mellon, John Harrison decided to ignore the skeptics who thought the little guy had no chance and went up against the world's greatest astronomers with his crazy-sounding plan. He built a series of clocks over many years that used clever tricks to keep accurate time at sea. He got rid of the pendulum and replaced it with a balance wheel, which was unaffected by the rolling of a ship. And he made key parts of his clocks using combinations of different metals to counteract the effect of thermal expansion and contraction. But as Harrison was forging ahead with all this technological progress, his dealings with the Longitude Prize Committee were much twistier and more complicated. He repeatedly went before the prize board and talked down his clocks, saying they weren't ready yet, even though they probably were. He didn't ask for the prize money. He kept saying, don't bother to give this a sea trial. Let me go back to the drawing board. He was a perfectionist, and winning the prize became less important to him than making a perfect device. In fact, after one of his self-deprecating appearances before the prize committee, Harrison went back to the drawing board for almost 20 years. And that's when he came back with H4, a watch about the size of a tea saucer. When it went on a sea trial, it lost less than two minutes during a stormy voyage across the Atlantic Ocean and back again. At this point, Harrison had finally solved the problem to his own satisfaction. But the truth is he probably could have passed a sea trial and made a claim on the prize at least 20 years earlier than he did. This is 20 years that he could have had millions of dollars in his pocket. How old a man is he at this point and, and, and why is he forgoing all this massive <laughs> amount of money? He was a different sort of bear. Um, so let's do the math. Born in 1693. By now, it's 1759, 1760. So he's, he's getting up there. But it has to be right. That's the thing. He wasn't going to settle for less. And he had been his own worst critic all the way along. But when he finished the watch, he wrote about it in a way that showed he had finally solved the problem to his own satisfaction, that it was really a beautiful thing, and he he was thankful to God that he had lived long enough to complete it. Harrison had made a tremendous advance for society at large, for commerce, for exploration. But having solved the tech problem, he faced a new challenge, getting the prize committee to recognize his achievement. The idea that this problem of building such an intricate clock would be done by a self-educated individual who did what the entire scientific establishment of Europe had failed to do for several centuries. That was the moment that really knocked me over. 
In fact, because the prize committee was made up mostly of astronomers, they resented the idea that a clockmaker, someone they considered a mere mechanic, could compete with a legendary astronomer like Galileo. They came up with various reasons not to give Harrison the prize, despite H4's impressive performance in the sea trial. The judges claimed it could just have been a fluke. Harrison was, as you might expect, pretty miffed. He became, understandably, very angry and difficult. And the case was argued in court on various occasions. Broadsides were published on both sides of the argument. It was um, it was a big flap. What did he want? What, what was he after? Justice. What was due him? He had, he had done the work. He'd proven the point. And mostly he wanted the credit for having done it. In the end, King George got involved and tested the watch in his private observatory and leaned on Parliament to give Harrison the money. So they finally did. John Harrison's story shows that identifying a big problem and offering a prize and opening it up to all comers can accomplish a lot. It's an idea that's gone in and out of favor over the years, but it's really taken off again recently. And the British government has actually rebooted the Longitude Prize, inviting people to vote to pick one of several modern-day problems that need solving and putting up a prize pot of £10 million. The problem of antimicrobial resistance, the fact that antibiotics are becoming less effective, was chosen as the challenge. So far, 75 teams from around the world have entered the competition. And guess who's in charge of the prize committee? Well, the original idea came from the current Astronomer Royal, Martin Rees. We were coming up to the 300-year anniversary of the original Longitude Prize, which was back in 2014. And he felt the power of a challenge prize was solving big, important societal problems through science and technology, through great innovation, and bring the public on board with it at the same time. This is Tris Dyson of Nesta, the British government body that's backing the new prize. And just like in 1714, anyone can enter. As with the original Longitude Prize, we're describing an outcome. And that's an important thing about Challenge Prizes. You're describing what success looks like, and therefore you're leaving it open to different ways of solving that problem. A lot of it is around competition and the race and the glamour and the excitement. Innovators and entrepreneurs are very optimistic people, so they often think they're going to win. Uh, and actually, obviously, only one does. But innovation can be driven by collaboration as well as competition. So you usually find that people start to get together and share ideas, if not actually deliberately partner, and it becomes quite collaborative. And then as you get closer to the end, as teams are closer to achieving it, uh, then that competitive spirit comes back again a bit. So unlike the original Longitude Prize, uh, it's unlikely to be a lone individual or entrepreneur because the sort of resources that you need and the laboratory and the teams that you need and the skills and so on you need to bring together to solve it. Uh, but that said, we would love it to be an individual from a garden shed somewhere. I just don't think it's very likely. Have there been any unexpected kinds of entrant? Uh, yes, there, there always are. Um, many that are probably not very credible. Um, there's certainly novel science and interesting ways of uh, detecting antimicrobials and that. So, so there's a lot of novel approaches um, and, yeah, some kind of slightly off-the-wall ones as well. 
This new 21st century Longitude Prize is actually just one of many modern tech prizes. There's been a real renaissance. We like to say that it it puts a, a target on the back of a challenge. Xenia Tata is the chief impact officer at the XPRIZE Foundation. So there's a big problem in the world. Now somebody's gone out and put a target on it. And not only that, they've made it kind of exciting. They've made it interesting. They've even made it lucrative. And they're putting a big old spotlight on that target now. Unlike the Longitude Prize, the funding for the X Prize comes from philanthropic sponsors who are interested in problems like adult literacy or deep ocean exploration. The first X Prize was about commercial space aviation. To win, a team had to build a manned craft that would go 100 kilometers up into suborbital space, then come down, land safely, and do the same flight again within two weeks. The prize was $10 million. A team funded by Paul Allen, the Microsoft co-founder, and led by the aviation legend Burt Rutan, successfully did it in 2004 and won the prize. People think you need cooperation between Russia and China and the United States and millions of people to do something fantastic. And hopefully we've shown today that 20 people can do something fantastic. A lot of times there are dreamers at the heart of these competitions. Some slightly wild-eyed person or group of people who have a ridiculous ambition. For the Lunar X Prize several years ago, the challenge was to be the first privately funded group to send an unmanned spacecraft to the moon. One of the teams that entered was from India. They were the last team to apply, and they were just trying to, to uh, in a drunken state, figure out how to apply for this prize. Uh, a little bit on a whim, a little bit of bravado here as well. And, and, uh, and then they applied, and, uh, and then once the application was completed, the next thing they did was they Googled, how do you get to the moon? How far is the moon? How do you go there, (laughs) you know? So they had absolutely no idea what they were doing. They made the finals of the competition. And although their craft never made it to the lunar surface and no one won the prize, these guys ended up starting India's first private aerospace company. I believe uh, innovation is driven by individuals. And I believe it's it's truly driven by by ordinary people, people who just have this, this kind of crazy purpose, this big drive inside of them that's bursting at the seams, that's tearing them apart, that needs to come out, that just needs to have an impact in the world. Today, there are several active X prizes. In one of them, you need to find a way to capture carbon dioxide from power stations and turn it into a useful product to prevent it from being released into the atmosphere. We have an amazing carbon prize. This is a prize not just to sequester carbon, uh, but to uh, but to capture it from 100% emissions from a coal-fired plant and to transform that carbon into products that have equal or greater value than the value of the energy that that plant is producing. Zoe Morrison is a professor at the University of Greenwich. She's on one of the teams competing for that carbon prize. The competition itself is an amazing thing to be part of because it's a catalyst for change. And it really is it's an ecosystem of hard innovation in, in a very niche area where it's quite difficult to get the science to work and to actually bring together people from across the globe that are doing that it really helps you keep the kettle boiling really so it's fair to say if the if the prize hadn't been there and the competition hadn't been there you wouldn't be doing any of this absolutely 
One benefit of taking part in a prize competition is that participants get taken more seriously, particularly if they advance beyond the first round. Because you just stop being somebody that's in the lab, burrowing away. You know, when we were working on campus, people just thought we were just, you know, it was just some mad project we were working on. But now that we're actually finalists, people are taking an interest. You know, what is, what is the X Prize? What, what does it mean? Who's doing what? What are you trying to achieve? That wider recognition can help with fundraising and recruitment. It also means that participants feel they're part of something bigger, part of a whole community trying to solve a difficult problem. What we've experienced is the, is the maverick nature of pursuing a prize. If somebody is working on carbon capture, we all win. Whilst in principle there is a competition and, and obviously people want to win the prize, actually it's an incredibly supportive environment. It sounds like a cliché, but in this instance, it's the taking part, not the winning. But just like Reinhold's team in the DARPA Grand Challenge, the taking part doesn't mean that Zoe's team is any less competitive. Are we going to win? So what happened to John Harrison? It turned out he had the last laugh. By the time he died in 1776, the Longitude Prize Committee looked pretty dumb because Harrison's invention had become an absolute necessity for sea travel. Captain James Cook used a watch like the one Harrison had created to chart the islands of the South Seas, which thrilled Harrison when he learned about it. Harrison's watches, which were called chronometers, were soon being mass-produced, and sailors swore by how easy they were to use. They made seafaring much safer, and because of that, they transformed exploration and trade. There's also no doubt that the search for longitude, inspired by that big prize, resulted in all sorts of other leaps forward. You may, for example, have a bimetallic strip invented by Harrison in your thermostat. And it was while trying to solve the longitude problem that an astronomer first measured the speed of light. The people who set up the prize had no idea it would have these kinds of unexpected knock-on effects. The strange thing is that a prize succeeded where other motivations didn't. War, for example, seems like it might inspire innovation because it's a matter of survival. And it does do that sometimes. You can think of the Manhattan Project, where scientists were racing to invent the atomic bomb during World War II. Solving the longitude problem would have given Britain's Navy a massive advantage in the wars of the day. But just telling the Astronomer Royal to solve the problem, sort of like the U.S. government did with the Manhattan Project, didn't work. Yeah, and you'd have thought that the profit motive might also have been enough to get someone to solve this problem. Because if you solved it, you'd be able to sell whatever you invented to every sea captain in the world. But investors won't back something if it sounds too crazy. And even for Silicon Valley venture capital firms who have the most appetite for risk today, there's a limit to the craziness of the ideas that they'll back. If you went to them and said, I want to develop a time machine, I don't think they'd fund you. So it's got to be something that looks plausible. And this didn't. So what is it that's different about a prize? Well, I think the way to think about it is that a prize acts as a sort of magnet that draws people in. And maybe the money's what attracts them in the first place. But then what starts to matter more is the competition. And perhaps instead of thinking about all of this as being about prizes, we ought to be thinking about it as being about competitions. Because when you've got that structure with rules and judges and a winner, people start to think about things in a different way. They want to beat the other teams. They want to be part of this community, this ecosystem, that understands how difficult a particular problem is to solve, and they want to be the one that does it, so they get that recognition from those other people. Ultimately, though, human motivation is kind of weird, I think. If you if you think of Paul Allen and that first Space Aviation X Prize, the prize was $10 million, and Paul Allen spent $26 million to win it, 
But Paul Allen co-founded Microsoft. I mean, he's worth billions of dollars. So it seemed like it wasn't really about money. Right. Prizes work to spur innovation, just not in the simple way we might think. If you had to make a pie chart of John Harrison's motivations, you know, kind of like laying out, you know, it was X percent this, X percent this, what kind of, what would that pie chart look like of his motivations for solving the longitude problem? Oh, I would give him a good 90% for just because it's there. And maybe the other 10 for the money. I'm Seth Stevenson. And I'm Tom Standage. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and Kate Holland. Editorial help was provided by Gabriel Roth. The senior producer for Slate Podcasts is TJ Raphael. The executive producers are Steve Lichtai for Slate Podcasts and Anne McElvoy for The Economist. A special thank you to Hudson River Community Sailing, which lent us a sailboat for this episode. HRCS is a place that I've been sailing at for years. They're a wonderful nonprofit that teaches math and physics and leadership to New York City public school kids by getting them out on boats. Oh, you know what you could do, though, Tom? Yep. When we come around, there's not any When we come around... I get to pull out a sheet. Well, you, when, we, when, when, the, when the jib goes across, after yep. it goes across, you're going to take this off. And the way you do it is just pull straight up, and it'll just kind of unwind itself. Right. And that will up. let it go. Okay. And that will let it over here. Yep. And then it'll okay. get here. And you might have to yank on that to, to tighten it on this tighten side. It. But we'll see how it okay. goes. Okay. This is going to be a pretty so you're attack. So mainly you're going to tell me when to let, let that rope go. Yeah. Just keep okay. this in your hands. Yep. And it'll okay. be pretty obvious, but I'll tell you when you can release the jib. I'll shout it out to you. I'll, bark, I'll be a real skipper and bark out commands. Ready about... Uh, tell me you're ready, crew. Uh, ready. <laughs> Great. Hard a lee. That means I'm pushing the tiller to lee, to leeward, to the side that's further from the wind. And we are coming about. We are tacking. We're going through the wind. The, the nose of the boat is going through the wind. There it is. We were on a port tack. We are now oh, going to be on a starboard tack. Release the windward jib sheet, Tom. Uh, yes, Good sir. job. Haul in the lure jib sheets. Haul in the, the, the working sheet. Is that the right one I'm pulling on there? Yeah, you've got, you've got it. You're sheeting in. Good. Good. Sheeting in the jib. Okay. Does that need to go in any further? No, okay? you're good. Okay. And now we are sailing south with the current. We have committed sailing. We def- That was the sailing maneuver. That was the sailing maneuver. That was attack. Yeah. We came right. about. We didn't lose any men. <laughs> oh, it's a nice breeze again. <laughs>